Speak Your Mind, the podcast with Carla Pava. Today we will be speaking with a special guest, Idalina Leandro. She will be sharing her story with us. Welcome, Idalina. Tell us your story and how it started. Thank you, first of all, for having me on. Um, I love listening to you on your podcast. I've been listening to them. Um, I was uh, born here in Toronto. Um, my parents were uh, immigrants from Portugal. My mom came here when she was 15. Uh, and my dad came here in his uh, early 20s. Me and my sister are first generation uh, Canadian. Uh, and um, they started off in Toronto, then they moved to Mississauga, and we moved around quite a bit uh, in my childhood because my father worked in sales and we were constantly moving around. So um, I wasn't, I don't think, in a school for more than two years between kindergarten and grade eight. Uh, we moved several places. We lived in the US, we lived in Portugal, then we came back. Um, and uh, in my early teens, so when I was about 13, my parents divorced. Um, and I started high school in Mississauga. Uh, okay, and while going through the that divorce experience, mm -hmm. Um, how did you um, overcome that impact? Because it is an impact in your life, especially when you're trying to figure it out. Um, why is this happening? Or what's, you know, what's the reason behind it? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was it was harder for me, I think. My sister's three years older than me. And uh, so she was 16. I was 13 when my parents split up. And, um, you know, being 13 is the beginning of your teenage years uh, and um, that for me was a bit complicated because I was very close to my father I, I guess I put him on a bit of a pedestal and thought of him in a certain way and then um, when he left us it was very devastating for me and um, it became very hard for my mom most of all that's for sure, but it became very hard for me as well to open up and and um, be close to my mom. It wasn't until the later years of my life that I became closer to my mom. Um, I think that, you know, my parents divorcing at this time of my life um, was really hard because I was trying to figure out, you know, being a teenager and being a 13-year-old and doing all that kind of stuff. and. Instead, you know, I was upset and crying and didn't understand why uh, my father had left. Um, yeah. Did you found um, the, like a little bit of resentment towards your mom? That's why you didn't really connect with her as much? Yeah, I think so. Because, or... I, I, you know, when you're that young, your, your parents don't or your mom, you know, my mom didn't tell me exactly the reason why my father had left or you know all the stories that you find out when you're older right because she also didn't want me to to hate my father because between you know what had happened between them had nothing to do with with my relationship with him as a as a as a daughter right so um, yeah my mom actually 
encouraged me to see my father as much as I could, but you know, my father wasn't really there for us to to see. I, I you know, till this day, I don't really speak to my father very much. Um, but we do have some sort of a relationship. You know, he does. Uh, he he's uh, he's present, just not so much so. But you know, being 13 and going through that was hard because then you know I pretty much spent my high school years um, being rebellious. You know, I didn't really study very well. I didn't you know go to class. I I didn't listen to my mom. I I and I also started hanging out with my best friend's family a lot more. I noticed, um, and I now I realize I did that more because there was a sense of family. Uh, in her house because her parents uh, are still together till this day so I think mm-hmm. I, I started hanging out a lot with her because well she was my best friend but also because it, her house was you know she had two sisters she had a mom and a dad and when I went to their house it was always just so welcoming and so you know family like and they'd have dinner and you know everyone's at the table and um, so basically I look at that as a form of an escape for you to feel that family sensation, that family environment that you had lost within your family. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, I my my grandmother lived with us most of um, my life, and uh, during that time when my parents split, it was me, my sister, my mom, my grandmother, and we were four very strong you know, women in that house. Well, I was a child. I was, you know, we were teenagers, but my mom and my grandmother are very, especially my grandmother, very small, strong woman. And I've always, um, you know, appreciated that. And, and especially when you're older, because when you're younger, you don't really understand what's going on. But um, yeah. I, I guess the lack of having my dad there and my dad's, that my dad's always a joker, right? My dad was always the the fun guy you know even when I got bad marks at school my mom would be like oh you have to study and my dad be like oh poor thing don't worry you know so yeah they always say there's a a good one and a bad one yeah right so (laughs) so it's kind of yeah it's you know the the bad cop good cop my dad was always the the good cop right so um after he left it was uh I don't to be honest with you I don't remember a lot of that um time in my life I think maybe I blocked some things out just just for my own I don't know um healing but yeah I, I I possibly yeah some people are able to do that yeah when it's, it's too weird, much of a trauma yeah my sister or my mom will say oh do you remember this or this and I'd be like no I don't remember at all um like I I do remember I remember the moment my mom told me that my parent you know they were splitting up um and I remember several moments, unfortunately, that I had arguments with my mom or my grandmother or even my sister. And, um, but I don't, I don't remember exactly, you know, feelings and, and all that kind of stuff that um, I went through during my teenage years um, of that happening. I do know that I, I spent a long time not wanting to speak to my father. And my mom really always encouraged me to do that, but I I really didn't want to. And I remember in my late teens, early 20s, um, I finally, you know, kind of put things behind me and started 
speaking to him and having a more of a relationship with him but it, mm-hmm. it, w- it was quite hard to grasp why um he would want to leave and it's not necessarily yeah, for sure. you know my mom but why he would want also to pretend like he didn't have any children because he left and started being with another woman and then you know he was with their family and forgot about his family and i think that's what really hurt me the most yeah that for sure i mean that's something that stays for life right it's like one of those things we forgive but we will never forget kind of thing yeah absolutely well it took me I don't know if I if I mind the forgiveness part yet, but I'm trying. So you're still trying to forgive, I see. Yeah, it takes time. I mean, um, sometimes it's all about we have to do the forgiving, not for them, but for ourselves, because we have to move Forward. on and yeah, we have yeah. to heal. Absolutely. And that that's something I, I and that's something again that you know, in my teens or my early 20s, um, no one really spoke about or made me realize um, that there was healing, you know, that there there's things that people need to do to heal. And it wasn't until my late 20s, early 30s, that I started getting into, uh, you know, yoga and meditation and, and, and healing and, you know, trying to learn to forgive. But um, it's been very hard for me to, to forgive certain things and, and um, I'm in that process still of learning how to do that because definitely it, it's not it's, it's not for my father or, or people who have hurt me throughout my life. It's just like you said, it's for me. It's for my healing. It, you know, you don't need to accept my apologies or apologize to me, but I, I, I need to uh, forgiveness is definitely something that heals the soul. Um, and I, I'm definitely yes. working on that. Yes. Well, that's a good thing that um, you're actually um, working on it. Some people just don't even want to work on it at all. And the fact that you are trying to get there, um, it's a huge step. Well, it, t- it took me a long time. Even, yeah. Well, thank you. It took me a very long time to even get to this point because there's a lot of anger, you know, that um, over it like just kind of takes over um, your your sense of common sense or your sense of trying to forgive because you're just like, well, no, this person just made me so angry. Like, why should I forgive them? Do you know? And so um, mm-hmm. dealing with yeah. that and actually accepting that is, you know, was very hard for me. Like I'm in my late four or, you know, mid forties. Um, and it's still a concept that's very hard for me to to grasp. So, you know, trying to do that, I think, is um, is a process as well. Yeah. Now, while going through the school mm-hmm. and um, being in, like, you were kind of friends with the wrong crowd and the wrong people kind of thing? Well, I would say that in my early teens, like, you know, 15, 16, I started hanging around with people. I remember my mom always telling me, and it's so funny because now that you're older, you, the things that your mom or your grandmother or your parents say to you always echo in your head. My mom was always like, oh, I don't like that girl that you're hanging out with. I'd be like, oh, she's my best friend. Like, it's fine. Da, da, da. But 
she knew my mom knew that there was you know and it's it, I'm I'm not putting blame on anyone because no one put a gun to my head and making me do anything it was it was fun to rebel and to do things that your parents didn't let you do and you know I would go out with this girl and we'd go and you know steal stuff from the store and I remember one time um we were at a store and we were had things like that we were stealing and I noticed someone looking at us and I I told my friend I'm like you better put that back because I think someone's watching us and she's like no they're not no they're not and I put the stuff back and I left the store and she got caught so from that day onwards I realized that I was lucky that I didn't get caught and I wouldn't want to have that situation with the cops bringing me to my mom's place you know tell bringing me home saying oh your daughter got caught stealing like that yeah yeah for sure so I'm 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 lucky that I was smart enough to understand certain things as well and I didn't uh, partake in certain things however I did enjoy being around you know people and and friends who were rebelling as well you know we'd uh that's yeah the the rule the rule breakers yeah yeah yeah. when I was 16 I started smoking cannabis and uh you know then that brought me to a whole different thing as well you know then that the girls that I would hang out with also smoke cannabis and then I started smoking cigarettes and we'd even hang out in my room smoking cigarettes and my mom just you know my mom was trying to figure out her own life while raising two teenage girls um and instead you know my mom was amazing and instead of my mom understood I think what was going on and she'd always be like you know your friends can come over um and if you want to smoke you can smoke you know so my my mom I would have my friend come over we'd I'd lock the door in my room and we'd play cards and smoke cigarettes all afternoon, <laughs> uh, you know, and just talk and, and do stuff like that. So, um, yeah, and it was a, especially in our late teens, my mom would always say, if you want to have parties, you know, you can have a party here because um, I think she started to understand that it was better for us, for her to know who my friends were and them be there than me to be out of the house and her not know where we were because back then there was no cell phones or uh internet yeah that makes sense i yeah it makes sense and um so basically um did you find that you did uh the smoking and all these things because um you were influenced or it was just something that you saw others see and you thought it was cool and you just want to be part of it? Well, my, my grandfather um, was a very heavy smoker. He passed away when I was eight. So that, that I think was the first uh, traumatizing moment of my life, like a major moment when I was eight years old. And he used to smoke constantly. Like I always remember him with a cigarette in his hand and, um, I always said I was never going to smoke because of that. And uh, then when my parents divorced and my dad wasn't around and my mom was a lot looser with 
raising us, obviously, because, you know, she was in her early 30s as well when she got divorced with two teenage kids and um, trying to figure out what was going on. And I think my mom didn't want to be too hard on us because of what was happening. So I remember the first time I had a cigarette was with my friend, uh, my one of my closest friends and longest friends uh, that I would hang out with her family. She we we found a pack of cigarettes one time in the field. And we were like, oh, you know, and I was like, oh, let's smoke them. So we smoked, started smoking the cigarettes. Um, I don't think I was influenced by anyone. I, I, you know, I, I have the, I have the rebellious streak in me too. Um, mm-hmm. But I had friends who, who, yeah, who enjoyed rebelling just like me, even though, you know, sometimes it was just fun just to do things that your parents didn't let you do, right? Um, yeah, I did start smoking since then, like that, that first cigarette that I had when I was 13, that I continued having cigarettes until I was 20 and I quit smoking because, um, but, uh, but yeah, just, I, okay. I don't think it was. So now tell me something, um, after you graduated high school, um, did you knew exactly where you want to head with your life? Well, so I didn't graduate high school. I actually quit high school uh, when I was 18. And it was the most ridiculous thing that I've ever done in my life. Um, well, not the most, but one of the most. I was so close to... Because in my high school years, uh, I... You know, my parents divorced and I was rebelling. I was smoking weed. I wasn't going to class. I didn't have a lot of my high school credits. And then in my last year in high school, they're like, well, you can't graduate because you have all these credits to do. Um, and I was like on the fence of whether or not I wanted to go to summer school. And then I remember, you know, this is the kind of person I was in 18. I remember the teacher giving me, I went to a Catholic school. I went to Philip Pocock and, uh, the teacher, one of the teachers was giving me grief because my uniform wasn't on properly. So he said to go to the office. So I went to the office and I quit school because I was just, didn't want the teacher to tell me what to do. Uh, and I had just turned 18 in, in June. So school was literally finishing within a couple of weeks. And I, I just quit high school and I didn't even tell my mom because I was 18 and I did, they didn't have to tell my mom either. Um, and no, I had no idea what I was going to do. Like, I had no idea. I know that at the time. And we're at the point in your life that you chose to move on on your own. Well, I was about, uh, so at 17, um, so my mom got into a relationship with, uh another man that she was with for a very long time that she was also going to marry and they moved into a house which we moved into as well uh at around the 15 16 year old mark as well so at at around 17 18 i knew i wanted to leave um as soon as i could and after i quit high school i started working at swiss chalet in mississauga i'll never forget um and i started getting money so me and my sister could move to Toronto. My sister was living in New York at the time. Um, She had moved to New York with uh, her friends and she was coming back to Toronto and I wanted to move out with her. So I I saved some money and uh, um, 
I moved down downtown with my sister and uh, when I was 19 and then I started doing photography. Uh, I was always doing photography throughout all this time that I was talking to you about my, you know, teenage years. I always had a camera in my hand. I have, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pictures. So I figured why not be a photographer? So I started working with this wedding photographer um, and I started assisting him in doing wedding photography. And that really made me never want to marry, uh, have a, a, a big wedding. That's for sure. Um And then I became uh, a rave photographer. I was going to raves and uh, parties and bringing my camera. And then people were asking me to take photos for them. And then I got hired from some of the clubs and uh, Club Life magazine. And I was, uh, you know, traveling and taking pictures of DJs. And I did that for quite some time. Uh, And when I was around 24, I decided to leave Toronto and move to Europe. So that's when I moved to England. Um, And I started doing photography there. So I guess the fact that um, at a young age, the fact that you moved here and there kind of helped you for your future to have that ability to be flexible and move to different uh, countries. Yeah, and be able to adjust because that, that experience that I had Uh, being younger with my family always traveling around it really instilled a travel bug within me and my sister like we you know my the the major part of my 20s was traveling the world Um, I lived in England for uh, a year and uh, I started working with some photographers and doing some rave uh, photography for some magazines like Mix Mag there and um my sister had gone back to New York, so um, I decided that I wanted to go and be with her. And then New York was quite difficult because, you know, I didn't have a visa or whatever. So I went back to London. And uh, when I went back to London, uh, I was working at a restaurant and I met uh, this couple that were there serving me and they offered me a job. Um, And the job was, pretty much a sales job, but it was to do economic reports for different uh, magazines like The Observer, The New York Times. And I said yes. So um, I traveled to Brazil. Uh, I traveled to the Philippines. I was in the Philippines for five months. I was in Brazil for two months. Um, Then I went to Portugal and um, I worked in Portugal for some time. Um, I was there for like a year working. And uh, during that year, I realized that I didn't want to continue doing this job and traveling, that I wanted to stay put somewhere and be a photographer. So I moved to Paris, France. Uh, And in Paris, I started working with fashion photographers like Martin Marcus and uh, Vincent Peters, uh, Sophia and Mauro. And I started really getting into the fashion industry and, and working even with uh, uh, an agency and um, I quickly realized that fashion was not where I wanted to go because it just you know taking pictures of 16 year old models in bikinis was not really what I wanted to do I found there was a very toxic environment in the fashion industry especially in Paris so um, Mm -hmm. I decided to I wanted to 
do acting and directing, um, which I had been doing in high school. Um, and I met this uh, American director called Charles Weinstein, who was um, having an acting class. It was Film Acting Paris. And he said, why don't you come to my class and uh, direct some of my students? And I was like, great. So that's where I actually started to learn about the Meisner technique. And I started acting. And next thing you know, I'm doing short films. I got an agent and I started acting. I was in Paris for about two years. I did a couple of films, TV. But it got to the point that um, I had, you know, I couldn't go any further because my French was not perfect. So I was always playing the foreigner, you know, with the accent or what have you. So I decided to move back to London. And when I moved back to London, uh, I started studying the Meisner technique with uh, Scott Williams at the Impulse Company. And that's when I really fell in love with, with acting again. Uh, and then I opened uh, a production company with a friend of mine, Lex Barker, and uh, we opened Nightshade Productions. Um, and we started making films. And funny enough, I was working at a restaurant as well to, uh, you know, pay the bills because being an actor or being in the arts, you can never, unless you get really lucky. Um, and until you make it, you have to do something else. And I always worked at restaurants, managed restaurants. And that's where I met my husband. And then my husband was also a director. So we started making movies together. And then we what a what a great combination, eh? Yeah. So it, who would have known? <laughs> who would have known from photography to um, acting to producing, directing, and now finding the love of your life just like that? Well, yeah. And funny enough, he's Portuguese, and I always used to say I would never be with a Portuguese man. And then I meet a Portuguese man in London, England, who I am now still married to. So <laughs> it was, it's kind of funny. Um, so, but in England, me and my husband decided, you know, well, me and my boy, he was my boyfriend at the time, but we decided that we wanted to have a more calm kind of life. So we moved to Portugal. And uh, when we moved to Portugal, we were living in Lisbon and I was trying to get some acting gigs and doing stuff like that. But it was very difficult because that was in 2010. That was, you know, when uh, the Portuguese economy was crashing and uh, we, we couldn't find any work. Uh, we had to move to the Algarve to be with his mom and I started working at a gym and he started working in a restaurant and then I got pregnant and I said, well, we're going back to Canada. So then that's how we ended up back here in Canada. We are going to take a quick break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. story so now being a mom for the first time how was that journey being a mom for the first time was amazing it was um it you know the minute that andre and i you know started going out and started being together it was like i knew that i'd always be with him and in I believe that he knew the same and we were trying to conceive. Um, we tried for about six months and then I became pregnant. And during that pregnancy, I, it was amazing. It was 
I didn't feel pregnant. You know, the first three months, obviously you feel a little bit sick or whatever, but I had the most amazing pregnancy with my daughter. Um, and it was, it was great. Uh, and then we came to Canada. She was born here. So I came here when she was about 15 weeks. Um, and then she was born in February of 2012. So, um, yeah, my, my first pregnancy was amazing. And then the journey after that became quite complicated because uh, me and my husband obviously wanted to have uh, a bigger family, but um, that didn't quite work out the way we had planned. I had um, had no problem in getting pregnant um, any of the other times that we tried it was keeping the baby so I had four miscarriages um, after my daughter was born um, and then we tried after the third miscarriage it was just you know we told I told my husband I you know I, I couldn't do it anymore we just have to and he he agreed you know that it was just a bit too much emotionally and um, mm-hmm. we weren't going to try and how how did that um, journey of, you know, not having the ability to, you know, have another child, how did it impact you and your husband, especially you, I guess, because you're the woman and you really wanted it. And plus emotionally, physically, how did it impact you? Well, yeah, it was, it was very um it was very tough because the first time it happened um we went to the ultrasound at six weeks and everything was fine and then we went to another ultrasound i think it was at nine weeks or something like that and there was no heartbeat and um it was very tough to you know my doctor told me over the phone pretty much the, the and uh said you know you have to go home and wait till it passes and I was just didn't understand why I would have to wait for something like that because here in Canada at the time I'm pretty sure it's the same but um, you don't it they don't consider a miscarriage an emergency so uh, you have to wait about four to six weeks to get a DNC at a hospital so I had to go to an abortion clinic to get a DNC done um, because the baby wasn't coming out naturally. So I think those things, so it was on top of the fact that I lost the baby, then the fact after that it took so long or it was so difficult to get the baby actually out, I think was, you know, obviously the traumatizing part as well. And then we decided to, to try again. Um, the same thing happened again. It didn't happen naturally, like it didn't come out naturally. I I had to go to another abortion clinic to have it done. And uh, I think that just to go back for the first time, the first time when I went to the abortion clinic to get it done, they they sit you down and interview you before you get the procedure done. And I think this woman had misunderstood the fact that I needed DNC and she was talking to us um, as if we were going to abort the baby. Uh, and she said to us, well, is there a reason why you don't want this child? And I just broke down. I'm like, what are you talking about? This child is 
didn't want us. Like, I'm not here for an abortion. I'm here for a DNC. And, you know, she was just appalled. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. You know, because the way she was talking to us was like she saw an older couple and she didn't quite understand why we were having an abortion, whether that's her business or not. That's nobody's business and why you decide to do that. But the, her judgment and her tone, the way she spoke to me was very sad. Like, it made me very sad. Um, not only because that wasn't the case why I was there, I was there before I didn't have a choice, but to think that, you know, women who go there to have abortions are treated like that, that really upset me. Um, and then the second time I went to another abortion clinic and, and they were uh, much friendlier uh, and much nicer. And then we decided to wait another year before we tried again. And then the third time, um, it happened, it was quite early, but uh, because I'd been pregnant so many other times, I knew that I was pregnant and the pregnancy test was positive. And then a couple of weeks later, I started bleeding. And that was a time when I was like, okay, well, we're not gonna do this anymore because I, I, I literally can't take it. So uh, after we had that conversation, I found out I was pregnant again. So I thought, you know, okay, it's meant to be, this is the rainbow baby, like we weren't even trying and you know, this is gonna be our baby, it's gonna happen. Sometimes it affects me when I talk about it, sometimes it doesn't, but it's it's always there anyway. So about 11 weeks, um, I miscarried again. Uh, and I think that one, that one was the most, um, it was the hardest, it was the most traumatizing because I was, um, I was really convinced that this was gonna be our rainbow baby. Like, um, I had no doubt in my mind. And then one day um, at about 10 and a half weeks, 11 weeks, me and my husband are having dinner and my daughter's in bed and we're talking about the baby. Uh, and then we start watching a movie and then I start getting cramps. And uh, it just happened so fast. It was like I was in labor. All of a sudden I went into labor. Um, I told my husband, I'm like, I know what's going on. So I'm just gonna go to the hospital. So I, uh, I was packing my things. I was literally going to the hospital. My husband couldn't come with me because my daughter was asleep. Um, my sister wasn't even here. I don't think my mom was either. Uh, they were in Portugal, um, and I, before I went to the hospital, I'm like, okay, I need to go to the washroom because I'm constantly peeing. So I went and I went to the washroom and that's when, um, everything just came out of me and, and, um, it was like all of a sudden the pain was gone. Everything was gone. It was just like, and then the, you know, it would there was just blood everywhere and uh i you know crying and my husband trying to hold me and i ended up going to the hospital and i stayed in the hospital there uh overnight because for them to monitor me and make sure everything was out and and lying in that bed uh by myself after that happened was it was such a weird feeling because I had gone through it before. Um, and, but yet 
I just couldn't understand how it happened again, you know? And, and that's when I started to uh, research and think about, you know, well, there has to be other women who are going through this uh, or have gone through this. And I didn't know how common it was. And even though I had four miscarriages, no one spoke to me about how common it was or that there was mental health support or that there's, uh, you know, it's like one in four women miscarry. You know, it's like somebody you know, if not you yourself or somebody you know, or people, if I tell them I had a miscarriage, they'll be like, oh, I had one, or I had two, or I, my sister had one, or my mom had one, or my grandmother had one. You know, it's the most common thing, and nobody really talks about it. So I decided to um, make a documentary about it. And about two and a half years ago, I started the production of a documentary called An Open Conversation. Um, because I want to make this an open conversation. Nobody talks about miscarriage. It's just so taboo and hush-hush to talk about it um, that when people go through it, they make you feel like it makes you feel like it's your fault. You have so much shame. You feel so much guilt that your body isn't working properly. Like there's just so many things that run through your head. Oh, I could have done this or I could have done that. Or, you know, there. It, it's just you know, the things that go through your head. And if, if someone had spoken to you or talked or, you know, told you it's common, it might happen. Or if some, if there was some kind of education about it, I think people uh, who go through pregnancy loss won't feel so alone and isolated. So basically your, um, your goal by doing what you're doing right now um, is basically to allow other women to understand they're not alone and there is uh, things that they can educate themselves to understand uh, what they're going through what potential could happen yeah absolutely right? and, and the more I did research the more I realized that um, you know uh, indigenous black and people of color go through a lot worse things than you know when they're dealing with this than um, than white women. When I was researching, I, I noticed that. I noticed that only people telling their stories or, you know, advocating for this was white middle-aged women, which is fine because I'm a white middle-aged woman. Um, it's just I started really delving into finding out about other stories of, you know, the indigenous culture or, you know, black women or uh, Indian women and and um, their stories just seem so much different than the other ones. Um, you know, I had a woman in Calgary who almost died because her doctor didn't believe that she was miscarrying and literally was mocking her in an Indian accent in front of her. Um, so there's a lot of very disturbing stories that happen here in Canada to women uh, that when you listen to them you think well that wasn't in Canada but it definitely is and that's one of the reasons why I'm making uh, producing this film is for you know people to understand that miscarriage and pregnancy loss is normal it happens to one in four women and one in every hundred women have a stillbirth some people have reasons for it like medical reasons but most there's no reason for it. It just happens. It's something that happens in every animal 
life it happens you know it just it just happens and people just make it such a stigma and you you know even when you're pregnant what do people do oh they keep it quiet for three months and why is that they want to see if you go past the three month mark right and then they only tell people that they're pregnant after three months um and it's people you're trained to do that right from from an early age you don't nobody I didn't even know I didn't even think about miscarriage when I was pregnant you know I didn't even think about those things um so the it's really to be to inform people make people like we need to normalize it because it's normal and so when a woman goes through a miscarriage like unfortunately um Sometimes a lot of blame is put on them. Um, again, they have no one to speak to. But there are places out there. There is support. And um, the lady that I mentioned, uh, Aditi, she opened a uh, pregnancy and infant loss support center in Calgary, and it's two years now that it's been open, um, with a specific, you know, um, to make sure that everyone is welcome. Uh, you know, black, indigenous, people of color, even people in the LGBTQ um, community, you know, who have gone through this. And, you know, like uh, there are couples, same sex couples who have gone through this. Um, and they're just not taken seriously because they, you know, they're same sex couple or, you know, just there's so many of those things happening. So um, I'm actually working with her. One of the things that I really wanted to do when I started this documentary was to create an app so that every per- every person who goes through this has, you know, support at their fingertips. And uh, we're working with the Pregnancy Infant Loss and Support uh, Center in Calgary to create this app uh, actually in the crowdfunding campaign is just starting on April 1st to do that so that, um, you have access and there's a mental health hotline uh, for pregnancy and infant loss uh, that they have, uh, which I don't have with me now, but I can give that to you. Um, so, you know, and the app is supposed to be quite easy. So you open the app, you see where there's support groups in your area. And so you have some kind of support. There's chats available, text, uh, you know, there's self-care um there's going to be a self-care uh portion so you know how to take care of yourself because that's another thing people don't talk about either self-care especially Mm -hmm. after pregnancy and infant loss no one talks about that either how do you take care of yourself after this happens to you you know what do you what do you do um there's so many questions and and uh we hope to help families who are going through this loss um with the app yeah that that's awesome like you guys came up with that structure you know for other women um Mm -hmm. and uh the other thing is when will that uh movie be available so i am and it's so i am still working on the movie unfortunately Mm -hmm. these things take time and these things take money and uh i've been also encountering the the stigma of what's going on in my funding. So I've actually had, you know, a woman tell me that the because of COVID and what's going on with COVID, that this subject matter isn't important enough, which just totally blew my mind when that 
person told me that because, you know, miscarriages and pregnancy loss doesn't stop for COVID. Actually, I have several women who have miscarried during COVID and we're going to be sharing their stories. Um, so funding is, is, you know, always the issue. Um, but in July, we're starting to film again. So I'm hoping that the movie will be ready uh, to go by the end of this year or the beginning of next year. Awesome. And um, now tell me about um, where is your career journey at? I know uh, you have some projects and things going on uh, besides yeah. the uh, miscarriage one. And um, so share with us about your career. Yeah, so um, I did. So right after when I was, we'll go back a little bit. So when I met my husband and we started making movies and we moved to Portugal, I started a documentary called uh, All She Wrote about female graffiti artists in Portugal. Um, and then I got pregnant. We came to Canada and I, I made the movie worldwide and Uh, that movie came out a couple of years ago and it was nominated for Best uh, Documentary at the LA Femme Film Festival in 2019. Um, and so filming documentaries is always something that I'm doing and now I'm currently doing this one. But during COVID, um, last year during the lockdown, uh, I started getting into visual arts. Uh, so I started creating something called projection art. So I used 35 millimeter slide um, uh, mounts uh, and vintage projectors to to do my art. Um, and that came from, you know, being in isolation. And then I have a friend of mine who owns a gallery coffee shop. And we just started brainstorming on how we can create some art for people to to see because of the lockdown you know if people are going for a walk and you know just do window exhibits so I started um, exhibiting my rave photographs from back in the day and you know I didn't have enough content for the the projectors so that's when I started creating art with gels and plastics and projecting that and uh, last beginning sorry at the end of last year Um, my art just got really uh, good reception and at the be the ending of last year, November, my art was chosen uh, from the city of Toronto um, and OCAD uh, for something called Big T.O. So it's very large format uh, art and projections um, and I was selected to be part of that but unfortunately that's when the second lockdown happened so uh, I didn't get to exhibit my art like that however um, I do now have a website and I sell my art and we feature other artists as well because I always that's something I always like doing is giving a platform for other people and other artists to to show their work. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. Um, and I'm also acting. I've been acting back, I've been back into acting for a couple of years now. Um, I did a couple of TV shows and, you know, commercials. Um, so going on auditions and doing my art right now is what's keeping me busy. Awesome. That's like, um, it's keep on going. <laughs> And uh, yeah, that's well, great. I'm very, I'm very big believer of if you want to do something, just do it. You know, um, that's how I started my movies. That's how I started my career. I, I don't, I've realized quick that 
you know, you don't depend on people for things that you want to do because uh, you always do it best, right? So yeah, uh, when sure. I wanted to, to start acting, I started acting. When I wanted to make a movie, I made a movie. Obviously, there are, um, you know, challenges that go with that. But I think that's part of growing and the part of my career that I'm really proud of is to start the projects that I wanted to do. You know, I've worked with other people before and, and done uh, and I've done projects that um, they started and, you know, I'm very good at my job. But really when I, you know, look at the things that I've done and I, and I look at the work that I do, um, I'm very proud of that because I, I like to uh, include and support um, issue, women's issues, political and social um, topics and, and that's something that I've been doing. That's beautiful. Idalina, um, is there a special message you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think, you know, exactly what I just said. If, you know, do if you want to do something, don't wait around, just do it. If you want to make a movie, you have a phone, make a movie on your phone. If you if you want to, you know, do a podcast, do a podcast. If you want to, you know, life is too short to be waiting around to, to do things. And sometimes you really need to take the risk um, and do it. And to me, I've, I was always told, you always have a no anyway. So why not just risk something that can turn into a yes? Amazing. I love that. Turning to a yes or even uh, anything that looks impossible turn to possibility, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Idalina, I would like to thank you for sharing your inspirational story with us today. And for all the listeners out there, a big thank you and keep tuning in for our next episode. Namaste. Namaste.